Scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of John and chapter 6, verses 22 to 51. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that, comes, that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good afternoon, my brothers and sisters. Before we consider this passage together, let's first pray and ask for God's grace. 
Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are gathered here in the name of Jesus. He is your Son, the bread who came down from heaven for our life. And we pray now that as we consider your word together and consider this gospel, that you would give us eyes to behold the glory of your Son. You would give us ears to hear his voice. And Father, I pray that we would respond in faith. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're continuing in our series in John's Gospel. And it's helpful for us to remember as we continue in this series why John wrote the Gospel. And I love the Gospel of John. And we could spend forever in the Gospel of John. We really could. Uh, Even just hearing the passage that was just read. You know, we could just focus, you know, phrase by phrase, statement by statement, and, and just meditate on the richness and the fullness and the depth of what Jesus is saying in this passage. And John wants us to meditate on the fullness and the richness and the depth of what he's written and what Jesus says. But we shouldn't forget why John wrote the gospel, his primary purpose. This is actually a missionary gospel. It's, it's written for unbelievers. It's written to unbelievers. And John tells us at the end of the gospel that he wrote this gospel He wrote these things so that we might believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing in him, have life in his name. That's why John has written this gospel. And as we've been reading through the gospel, we've seen a number of people that have heard Christ and come to him and believe in him. In chapter 1, the disciples heard him. They, They heard the preaching of John the Baptist. Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And they followed him and they believed in him. And we saw in John chapter 3 that Nicodemus came to him by night and inquired of him and how uh, Jesus began to draw him out and reveal himself to him. And we know by the end of the gospel that that Nicodemus did come to faith, to believe in him. And then in John 4, there's the woman at the well and she just sees him as a Jew, but then over time, she comes to see that he's the Christ and she goes back to Samaria and she declares the, the, the man that she saw. And then they come out and hear him. And they declare, truly this is the savior of the world. And they believed in him. And then there's the official in Capernaum. And notice that uh, here we're back in Capernaum again. The official from Capernaum, he believed. And his whole household believed. So there have been people along that are believing in Jesus. And this is why John's written the gospel. But then in chapter 5, we're introduced to the theme of unbelief. And you'll remember that the the Jews in Jerusalem didn't believe Jesus. And in fact, their response was murderous persecution of Jesus. And then here in Capernaum, we see the response of unbelief again. And as we read through the gospel, yes, the gospel is drawing us out in belief and faith. But the gospel also confronts us with our unbelief, with unbelief. And it's easy for us to read a passage like this and just assume, okay, we're the believers. You know, we believe. Because reading through this, I know it's rich, I know it's deep, but it's also fairly clear. It's clear what Jesus is saying. And we're just observing this back and forth between Jesus and the crowd. And they don't seem to get it. And we, it's not clear why they don't get it. I read this and I think, yeah, it's pretty obvious. Jesus is the bread. Believe in him. He's the source of life. Believe in him. Trust him. That seems clear to us. But let's not 
mistake understanding what, what the text is saying. And let's not mistake understanding the gospel with true and saving faith. And here Jesus reveals that we are all unbelievers. Each one of us is an unbeliever. And we may read through this and think, okay, I get it, I understand it. But our Lord confronts us in this text and names our condition. We are unbelievers. And in fact, he tells us the only reason we do come to believe is because the Father has given us to the Son. And those whom the Father draws to the Son are those who come to the Son. And only those. And if, it, if we were left to ourselves, we wouldn't believe. We may follow Jesus for a time because our tummies are full. But we'll demand signs and we'll grumble when the signs that are given don't meet our expectations. And so we're confronted, yes, with uh, the call to believe, but we're also confronted with unbelief in this passage. And we're warned about unbelief. And we're warned that if we demand signs and if we're grumbling, that's a sign of unbelief. It's a warning about unbelief. So as we consider this account, uh, I want to consider it under four headings. First of all, the call to believe. Jesus calls them to believe in him at the beginning. Then the persistence of unbelief. Then the Father's gift of faith. And then finally, the confidence of our faith or the assurance of our faith. So first, the call to believe. Listen again to verses 26 to 29. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you were seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me. I know you're seeking me. And you're seeking me because you had your fill of loaves. And we need to remember what we heard last week in the first part of John's gospel, uh, John chapter 6. When Jesus filled, uh, provided the multitude with, with bread and with fish, they said, Surely this is the prophet of whom Moses spoke. And they wanted to take hold of him and make them king. And as far as they were concerned, and they were, as they, you know, they considered their temporal circumstance and their situation, it was a time for them of economic instability. It was a time of political oppression. And he, here was one who had obvious power, who was obviously sent from God, and who was providing their needs. And so they, they had a, a temporal perspective and a temporal concern. He's the one that's going to restore the economy. He's the one that is going to deliver us from political oppression. And so they were seeking to make him king. And Jesus calls them out on it. That's why you're following me and that's why you're looking for me. Because I filled your stomach with loaves. Now, it's not that Jesus is not concerned about their temporal needs. Obviously not. He just fed them. But he wants to, to turn their attention away from, from the, the, the concerns of the moment and the concerns of the day. And have them... Not ignore those things, but see those things in, in the light of an eternal perspective. Don't work for the food that perishes. Work for the food that endures to eternal life. 
And we're living in a time right now where there is so much going on around us that is claiming our attention and causes us to focus on the immediate needs and the concerns of the moment, of the time. This is sort of uh, ironic, I suppose, but on Friday I was, I was studying this text. I was preparing this sermon. But I found throughout the day I kept getting distracted. I was reading about Pastor James Coates in prison. And I was hearing the announcement from the government that Toronto would remain under the stay-at-home order for another two weeks. And I was reading articles on that, and I found myself, you know, looking at what was going on in York Region and comparing that to Toronto and looking at the stats and thinking, you know, it's no different in York Region than it is in Toronto. What, what's, why are they open and we're not? And I was getting frustrated with that and distracted by that, and I'm complaining to Megan about that and that, you know, Toronto's top doctor wants us to stay closed down, so now we are. And I, it was distracting me from the very thing that Jesus says, don't, don't get preoccupied with that and lose sight of the food that endures to eternal life. And in, in God's kindness, they may, this may sound a little bit strange. Uh, maybe some of you have experienced this, but I actually woke up yesterday morning, Saturday morning, praying. I woke up praying. I, must, I don't know if I was praying in my sleep. I don't know if that's a thing. But I woke up praying. <laughs> and... I was very aware of, of God's presence, and the Lord just said to me, David, you know, you've woken up to this new day. Toronto's top doctor is not seated at the right hand of my father right now. My son, your Lord and Savior, is seated at the right hand. He is governing all things for your good. Just calm down. It's okay. And I need to be reminded of that. And our Lord uh, sets the attention of the people not just on their immediate concerns, but on, the, on, on eternal concerns. And so he says, work for the bread that endures to eternal life, the food that endures to eternal life. And so their immediate response is, okay, what are the works? What are the works? If we're supposed to work, what are they? Tell us what are the works of God. And Jesus' simple response is, it's not the works of God. The work of God is to believe in him whom he has sent. Believe in him. It's a call to faith. Now notice their immediate response to that. When he calls on them to believe in the one whom the Father has sent, their immediate response is to demand a sign. And this reveals their unbelief. So in verse 30, they demand a sign. They want a sign. And then a little later on, in verses 41 and 42, they grumble. Because when our Lord gives them the sign, it's me, I'm the bread of life, they say, oh, we, how can it be you? How can you be the one that has come down from heaven? So they grumble. And demanding a sign and grumbling are the evidence of unbelief. And they show the persistence of unbelief. So notice first in verse 30. When Jesus calls on them to believe in him, they say to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? So their response to Jesus' call to believe in him is to demand a sign. They want a sign. And unbelief and the spirit of unbelief always demands a sign. Always wants a sign. And the very demand for a sign is the manifestation of unbelief and it actually confirms a, a person in unbelief. Because if you think of the motivation behind the demand for a sign, the demand is... God, we want you to come down on our terms and meet our expectations. Sure, we'll believe, 
but come down and here's the requirements for our belief. Come down. Come down and meet us on our terms. Come down and meet our expectations. And if that's the spirit, how can such a person ever believe? There can be no faith, no trust in God if we demand that he come to us on our terms and that he meet our expectations. And the demand for a sign leads to grumbling because whatever sign is given, it's not enough. It doesn't meet the expectation. And so Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. It's me. Believe in me. And they say in verses 41 and 42, they grumble. And they say, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? They demand a sign. They're not satisfied by the sign. And then they they grumble. And notice that we see the same combination of signs and grumbling in the Exodus, in the wilderness wandering of God's people. There was a lot of signs in the Exodus. There was the ten plagues. There was the parting of the Red Sea. There was the manna in the wilderness. There was the the water from the rock. There was the pillar of uh, fire. There was the pillar of cloud. And yet the people in the wilderness grumbled and again and again doubted God, didn't believe. And when he brought them to the border of the promised land and was about to bring them in, they didn't believe him. They said, well, the people are big there. We can't do it. And so a people who demand signs are also a people who will grumble. Because to demand a sign is to expect that God will come down on our terms. And when he doesn't come to us on our terms, then we grumble and complain about it. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of the account of Naaman in 1 Kings chapter, or 2 Kings chapter 5. You'll remember the story, Naaman is a, a captain of the Syrian army. He has leprosy. And one of the slave girls, actually a, a young Israelite woman that had been captured in war and, and taken as a captive, she says uh, to, to the man's wife, there's a prophet in Israel who can heal your husband. He can be healed. And so Naaman goes to Israel and he brings with him all kinds of payment for the healing. You know, donkeys full of clothing and all kinds of things. And when he finally comes to Elisha's house, Elisha sends out his servant. And Naaman is offended by this because, you know, I'm the captain. I'm a captain. You need to come out and meet me. What do, you, what do you send your servant for? And then Elisha says to Naaman, go to the Jordan River and dip seven times in the river and you will be healed. And Naaman grumbles at this. And he said, I thought you were going to come out and wave your hands. And you were going to wave your hands and say some stuff. Like, isn't that how that works? I was expecting, you know, to do some God stuff. Come out and wave your hands. And so he leaves. But then his servant says, you know, master, he did say if you dip seven times, you'd be healed. Why not? And he does. And you'll remember the description. He came up out of the water the seventh time. He had flesh like a, like a baby. And that's a, a symbol, a sign of being born again. But he wanted, you know, wave your hands. Give me some signs. And in God's grace and mercy to Naaman, his heart was turned, and he did go and dip in the, in the water seven times. He was healed. But at the heart of the demand for signs, and the reason for such grumbling is unbelief. And that crowd 2,000 years ago in Capernaum is the same as the crowds today that reject Christ and reject the gospel. 
The reason they rejected him then, the reason people reject him now, is they want God to come on their terms. Come to me on my terms. Meet my expectations. And when God doesn't come on our terms, then we we grumble and we complain and we reject the gospel. Now, Jesus tells us in this passage that all of us are unbelievers. The spirit of unbelief is deep-seated in all of us. We're all unbelievers. And the question is, well, how do we believe then? How do we believe? And left to ourselves, we would be those who demand that God come to us on our terms. We would be those who maybe follow him for a time, as long as our bellies are full. But eventually we would grumble and walk away. That would be each one of us. And the only reason we believe is because of what Jesus says in verse 37 and then verse 44. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And then verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The only reason any of us believe in the Son is because the Father has given us to the Son. And so we have come to him. The only reason any of us come to the Son or believe in the Son is because the Father draws us to the Son. It's not because we expected certain signs and then saw them and said, oh, okay, I'll follow. I'll believe. Now, the way in which the Father draws us to the Son is unique and different in every case. You know, each one of our testimonies, if we could take the time this afternoon, each one of us share our testimony, it wouldn't be the same story. Each of us has a unique testimony, a different testimony. And yet, it's a, it's a testimony to the same reality. It's a testimony to the Father drawing us to the Son. I know I've shared my testimony before, but the Father drew me to the Son at a very young age. I was in Bolivia in South America. My parents were missionaries there. And I was sitting on the front steps of my mother's house, and she shared the gospel with me. Very simply, I was four years old, but she just told me that Jesus is the Son of God. And God sent him to die on the cross for my sins. He raised him on the third day. And if I believe in him, trust in him, I'll have eternal life. And I remember at the time, not just understanding what my mom said, I, I, remember, I remember the feeling. I remember knowing this is true. And I remember being very happy about it. And I've believed it's true, and I've been very happy about it ever since. I was four years old, and I was, well, I'm 42 now, so that was 38 years ago. That's the father drawing me to the son. But for you, it's different, but the same reality. The Father has drawn you to the Son. And I was reminded as I was thinking about this of the story of Augustine, and I highly recommend that you read Augustine's Confessions. It's an account of his conversion. And his story of the Father drawing him to the Son, well, it's drawn out. It's a drawn out story. But it's wonderful how Augustine looks back on his life and he sees all of the moments of God's providence. And there's one very moving account in the middle of the book when Augustine, he'd been living in Carthage for a while. He was a teacher of rhetoric there. Back in that day, teaching rhetoric was a big deal. Like everybody wanted to be able to be a good public speaker. So if you had money, you'd send your kids off to be trained in rhetoric. And the teacher of rhetoric was a real, you know, celebrity. So that was Augustine in Carthage. But he was such a celebrity there that he was offered a position in Rome. And that was, you know, the place to go, Rome, to be a teacher. And Augustine tells us 
uh, he's actually confessing this to the Lord. He says, Lord, you know at the time why I wanted to go. He says the pay was better, there was more prestige. And then he also says, actually, the main reason was, I've heard that the students in Rome are better than the students in Carthage. In Carthage, you know, they don't want to learn, but in Rome, they really do. But he says, that's why I wanted to go, but you sent me for another reason. Now, at the same time, Augustine tells us that his mother, who all of her life, she was a believer, she was a Christian, she prayed for her son. And Augustine expresses it quite beautifully. He says, my mother's prayers for me and for my salvation, she would pray with tears. And she said, the tears of my mother would irrigate the ground at her feet as she prayed for me. And she, she followed him to Carthage. And uh, the day when he was to leave to go to Rome, she went into the church. And she spent all night weeping and praying for her son. And she was pleading with God not to let him go. Keep him here. Don't let him go to Rome. Because she feared if he goes to Rome, he'll be lost forever. Uh, I, won't, I, won't, I can't go with him. I won't have an influence on him. And he's gotten into trouble here in Carthage. It's going to be far worse when he goes to Rome. You know, all the prestige, all the money, everything that goes along with that. And so she pleaded and pleaded with God all night in tears that he would keep him in Carthage. And when she woke up, he'd already gone. He left in the night on a ship. But Augustine says that at the time my mother didn't know, although later she did come to know, that actually his departure from Carthage to Rome was the answer to his mother's prayer. Because when he went to Italy, he eventually found his way to Milan, and he found a man named Ambrose of Milan, and he sat under his preaching, and he heard the gospel, and he was saved. He was converted. And Augustine put it it quite beautifully. He says, you know, I sailed across the waters of the Mediterranean to Rome, and you were leading me to the waters of baptism. But I say this because his mother, Monica, persevered in praying for him. And she was praying to the Father, the Father who draws believers to his Son. And she persevered in that prayer. And our prayers for the lost are the ordained means, often the ordained means by which the Father draws people to his Son. And she persevered in prayer. And she pleaded with her heavenly father. And in time, her son was drawn to the son of God. So it's a reminder to us to persevere in prayer. And oftentimes, our prayers are the ordained means by which God draws people to his son. So that's the gift of faith, the the father's gift of faith. The only reason each, any one of us believes is because the Father draws us to the Son. But then here's the, the confidence or the assurance of faith. So verse 37 again. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Here what Jesus says is the assurance and the confidence of our faith. Because he's saying to us, all that the Father gives me come to me, And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now we need to see this in the light of what Jesus says in the gospel about his relationship with his father. And the father loves the son. And the son loves the father. And the father's gift of believers to the son is an expression of the father's love for the son. And the son receives that gift. And he holds and keeps that gift. 
And those who come to the Son, he will never cast out. Now recognize that you are that gift. You are that gift. You're the gift uh, from the Father to the Son. And yes, our salvation and and our confidence, the assurance of our salvation rests in God's love for us. He loves us. But actually rests in something even deeper than that. It rests in the love of the Father for the Son. And the Son for the Father. Because the Father loves the Son, he's given you and me to his Son. And because his Son loves the Father, he gladly receives us. He will never cast us out. So the assurance of our life in Christ, the assurance of our salvation, the security, eternal security of our salvation rests in the love of the Father and the Son. But then Jesus goes on to say in verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So notice he's talking about now the will of God, the will of the Father, and he's come to do the will of of the Father, the will of the Father and the Son. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus is telling us he's come to do the will of his Father. And the will of his Father is that he shouldn't lose any of those that he has given to him. He's come to do the will of his Father. The will of his Father is that he shouldn't lose you, that he will hold on to you. Now, if we doubt our salvation, if we doubt the eternal life that we have in Christ, It means we are doubting that the Son will do the will of his Father. But the Son will accomplish the will of his Father. He came to do the will of his Father. He loves his Father. And our our life in Christ and our salvation is secure because it rests on the obedient love of the Son for the Father. There, There in our... Our old church back in the East End, I remember in the basement there was this painting in the lounge. Uh, it was kind of a drawing, actually. It was black and white. But it depicted this, this woman who was clinging to this stone cross. You know, she's just kind of at the base of it, and she's holding on to it. And all around her are these stormy waters. And I understand the sentiment of the picture. You know, I, I get that, and it says something. You know, we cling to the cross in the midst of the storms of life. I understand that. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying here, look, in the storms of life, cling to me, cling to the cross, and you'll be safe. Because what he's saying here is, in the storms of life, I'm clinging to you. I have a hold of you. And if it were left to me to hold on to that stone cross, I'd be swept away. I'm not strong enough. But he has a hold of us. He is, uh, he will not let us go. Jesus says the same thing in John 10. He's the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. And then he says, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. And he says, no one will snatch them from my hand. No one will snatch them from my hand. That means no one will snatch them from his hand. And then he says, my father, who is greater than I, no one will snatch them from his hand. My father and I are one. We're one. Again, the security of our salvation, of the life we have in Christ, is as secure as the unity of the Father and the Son. That's the confidence, the assurance of our faith. Now, in life, yes, there are the storms of life. And there are times when 
we, we look for signs. We look for, for the assurance of God's grace. We do ask for signs. And in fact, you read through the Psalms, and the psalmists do again and again. Cry out, where are you, Lord? Make your face to shine upon me. And there are times when we grumble. Now, we do, we do need to be warned that demanding signs and grumbling is a sign of unbelief. But don't be discouraged that if you find yourself at a time grumbling, or you find yourself at a time uh, looking for, for a sign of reassurance, uh, don't fear at that moment, well, I must be an unbeliever. That's not necessarily the case. And in fact, the Psalms give us permission to pray and call out for God to show his face. But our Lord tells us both in John 10 and in our passage in John chapter 6, what we do at a time like that. Jesus says in John 10, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, they follow me. We listen to his voice, we follow him. But then notice what he says in John 6 here, verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. We we will know the assurance that we have. We will abide in the assurance that we have in Christ. We will abide in the confidence of faith as we listen to his voice, as we follow as we learn. And that's the importance of reading the scriptures, studying the scriptures, hearing the voice of God. And not only that, but keeping, following. Think of what Jesus says. He's the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice, they follow me. If you're a sheep in the flock of Christ and you're not following, that means you're slowly falling back and you're not close to the shepherd and his voice, his voice gets distant. And we're living in a time now where there's so many voices. And we start to listen to those other voices. But as we listen to the voice of the Good Shepherd, as we listen to the voice of the Father, as we learn and as we follow, then we're close. And we have the assurance. We hear his voice. We have the assurance of his presence. So those times when we're crying out and those times when uh, we're grumbling, again, follow the psalmist because there's lots of lament psalms. But the Psalms always turn back to the promises of God, his covenant word. Listen to that. Come back to that. And then you'll have the assurance. You'll have the confidence of faith again. But it's not just the word of God. It's also this table here, the Lord's table. Let's remember that the final command that Jesus gives to his disciples before his ascension. Yes, it's the Great Commission. Go make disciples, baptize. But his, his final command is behold. Behold, I am with you till the end of the age. That's a command. Behold, look, see, I am with you till the end of the age. And that's why he's commanded us to keep the Lord's Supper, to observe the Lord's Supper in remembrance of him. Do this in remembrance of him. Here we remember that our Lord is with us. Here we remember the bread that came down from heaven. And those who come to him, those who receive him, have eternal life. And so that's why Sunday by Sunday we come to this table to receive this bread and to receive this cup because it reminds us of our Lord's presence with us. It reminds us that he's the bread that came down from heaven. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me 
will have eternal life. And it's a reminder that he will raise us up on the last day. So let's come to the Lord's table now.